Nick. Thanks for listening to Talking Architecture and Design, brought to you in association with the Architecture and Design Network. The A&D Network proudly presents the Sustainability Awards now in their 14th year. You can find more information at sustainablebuildingawards.com.au. Welcome to Talking Architecture and Design. My name is Branko Mydick and today we have with us Harold Perks. Harold Perks is Director with Hayne Sharley and has been a part of the practice for over a decade. A registered architect with over 18 years practice experience, specialising in mixed use, master planning, commercial retail, high-end residential design, warehouse and hospitality architecture. His passion for carefully considered urban fabric regularly sees him working at the complex intersection between urban design and architecture, working collaboratively with clients and stakeholders to identify critical project objectives. Harold ensures that all requirements are appropriately discovered and developed in order to create high caliber design outcomes that not only meet the brief and budget, but also responsibly benefit the wider community. Being skilled at visualizing new projects, Harold has a keen eye for design resolution and a valuable ability to work seamlessly between clients, consultants, and builders at any stage throughout projects. So, welcome to Talking Architecture and Design, Harold Perks. Well, thanks very much, Maker. Thanks for having me. And uh, a bit of a mouthful, but uh, I'm a fairly simple person. So <laughs> good to know. That's okay. That's uh, that. That was the short version of your uh, of your intro. The, the long, the long version is much longer. So, tell me, uh, Harold, what's you know in your mind? And having been to Perth a couple of times. Um, and I, I have something that in, in my head that, that I, I know the difference between Perth and Sydney and, and Melbourne architecture, but what is the difference between the design and the and for more importantly, the approach to design between Perth and let's say the Eastern States, if I can put it that way? Yeah, look, it's um it's very it is a very interesting question. I think there's many, many responses possibly to it. But I think um certainly from my experience in working on the east coast versus the west coast of Perth, more specifically, is down to. I'd really boil it down to two areas of, um, of specifics. Um, one, and I'll start with this one. One's probably the delivery of design, um, and the second being and slash cultural nuance between the east and the west. Um, you know, if we look at the delivery of design, you know, with, with respect to it, uh, I found slight variances in the execution by builders and more specifically the trades um, upon which the builders rely heaviest. In WA, you know, previously I found that during the boom times when they, uh, a lot of the trade would capitalise on the resourcing boom and would often leave the construction contractors with, you know, uh, a, bit of, a bit of exposure bit of exposure um, and uh, for that reason I think we we really as part of our design and delivery process got to um, got to work a lot closer with builders and their trades um, in, in helping to close that gap of experience with those trades I think the smaller population of available trades in WA is more susceptible to those kind of market shifts when compared to the east um, but what it's done for us as a practice, I think, in WA, it's helped us to really refine that detailing and working closely with the builders. Um, means that we've rapidly, we've got to rapidly develop pragmatic detailing and documentation to assist the builders and ensure the execution of projects meets the design intent. Um, 
all of which we take on to ensure that our designs are not left exposed to poor outcomes and uh, help to reduce some of the pressures on the, the contractors. But in turn, what that's done is it's given us valuable lessons in terms of how buildings are put together and closes another gap, which is university, the gap of university tuition of how buildings are actually built and put together. Um, so it's given our teams a lot of a fantastic opportunity of um, you know, pulling buildings together and, and uh, refining design, um, which we, you know, we've put back into our quiver and share that back across to the east um, to help, you know, refine our designs uh, on the east and, and from a delivery point of view, also reassure builders and, and, and landlords and developers that um, their designs can actually get built. And I always say a really good designer is someone that truly fundamentally understands how to put a building together. So that's one aspect. The other one I'll quickly go into and really touches on our design process, the cultural and the climatic influence between the regional areas. And uh, at Hang Charlie, we, you know, we 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 believe we have we need to design a building. Um, what does the building owe its context as opposed to simply its its program? Um, so I know it sounds obvious, but the biggest gap and difference is is the cultural or the climatic nuances um, and having a, a genuine appreciation for the weather, the way communities operate. Uh, appreciating what's important to the local community and what ma what actually matters to the locals is critical to our approach and our design philosophy. You know, at Hamshire, we are very clear that our process must respond to, to its context and people first. And for that reason, we don't have a set style or aesthetic or driver other than the value of context. Um, yeah, so for this reason, you know, our designs vary quite substantially between East and West and largely due to the intimate appreciation of climate, demographics, uh, cultural diversity, you know, things like understanding how weather actually affects people in Perth is very different to the way people, you know, roll with the weather in, in Melbourne, say, um, yeah, so yeah. the way you design your urban fabric and your precincts. There's a bit more forgiveness in certain things in one region versus another where it just wouldn't be acceptable. Um, so for us, I think as part of our process, it's very important to understand that. Yeah, it's interesting. Many years ago, I heard that in Melbourne, they build everything with like, you know, you know like inbuilt heating systems, uh, which is unknown in Sydney. Like it's, yeah. it's like, what, 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 what's a, what, what is that? You know, which I, I assume, I don't know, I assume, in Perth, is something that obviously isn't done as well. Um, but yeah, it, it, the climate does, does does vary a lot in Australia. And speaking of climate change, how's, how's that for a segue? That's a brilliant segue. There, there was uh, there was some some small conference on recently about climate change. I heard something about it recently. Um, yeah. Do you think do you think that the design profession? And I, I know this is, it's a bit unfair to get you to be the spokesman for you know Australia's architects, but here you are, okay. Here you are, Harold. You are now the spokesman for all, all the architects in Australia. Do you think that the design profession has done enough to help address this issue? Um, like, in, in, in your opinion, of course. Yeah, of course. Can it do more? And if so, how? Um, and I'm sort of like, I'm looking looking at that from your experience with you know adapt, adaptive redesign and whatnot. So, maybe. yeah, absolutely. Look, I think. 
yeah, again, that's a very broad, broad subject that you know you can go into a lot of different details and aspects. But I think I, I reflect on I, I reflect on this in a very personal manner. So for me, I I don't think anyone can genuinely do enough, um, given the pressure on reducing emissions and truly reversing the emissions process. So no, I think we've just simply scratched the surface as a profession. Um, for me, I think there, there's a lot we need to improve in terms of design, specifications, material selections, methodologies, reuse, um, you know, being creative and innovative in that space. Construction waste, uh, energy generation, sustainability, I can carry on. Um, because all those tools are really at our disposal and we're at the kind of coal face of, of making it happen. But without immediate change in our own behavior, I think it's just sophisticated lip service or a trend, you know, unless we really believe in it. But we'll only believe it if, if we really change our own behavior. So, you know, in my view, I think the, sorry, in my view, I think the design profession is a hyper optimistic collective. Um, you know, this, this collective has a long way to go to help drive and enable change. You know, we're an amazing pool of creative thinkers and people who yearn for a challenge. Uh, challenges pretty clear and it's going to come uh, it's going to become our biggest industry so we need to get our emissions under control and assist uh, not only in forming policy but be proactive in defining a change to our very own behavior i'm not talking about recycling our waste or sticking by fully on buildings or splashing them with pv panels to make them green I mean, taking serious steps in having a difficult conversation with a client early on on a project and generally pushing the boundaries of responsible design. Genuine discussions that are based on belief and pure personal conviction driven by behavior. I mean, if every designer around the world takes a very personal pledge, and again, I'm probably talking more of exception than the rule, um, to make immediate change to personal circumstances and behavior, it will intuitively ooze into every aspect of the design thinking and action. And, and again, I reflect on this personally because we've, as a family of four, have downsized. Um, we've, we've actually committed to, we'll see how it goes, but doing no more than 1500 kilometers a year in our personal car. And um, we've done that by, fully adopting electric assist bicycles. So, you know, and, and that, that covers our 15 to 20 kilometer radius around the house. So that includes the work commute, school drop-offs, um, sport, you know, weekly groceries, we do all, all the pushies and the car is the exception if we have to get something bulky. So for me, it's been an amazing influence in my thinking around this particular subject and at the same time, I do feel more energetic about talking about it and pushing, pushing that notion. Um, so, you know, I've personally taken that step and that's why I say, I think if, if every designer does something, you know, act actively believes in it and, and lives it, it's a lot easier to have that conversation early on a project. 1500 kilometers max per year in your car. Wow, that's, that's impressive, I've got to say. A really oh, it's it's good during lockdown because you can actually do that <laughs> yeah i was about to say lockdown i'm sure i'm, I'm sure that won't be hard but if, yeah i mean in sydney like the city's fairly large and so is melbourne yeah. in the surface area 1500 kilometers is like your weekly it's like your weekly yeah. 
Well, actually, no, I shouldn't say. It's probably like your monthly. So three tanks of fuel, yeah? Yeah, pretty much. Um, but anyway, look, let's talk about the other pain that we have, COVID. Um, I've spoken to a lot of architects and they, they've, they've all been fairly unanimous in, in, in their answers. I'll ask you, in your opinion, has this pandemic changed the way we design buildings moving forward? Um, yeah, look, I think I think the, the short answer is uh, yes, in that it's helped uh, accelerate the evolution of the workplace. Um, I think, it, you know, there's always the constant drive and evolution and innovation of our workplace. Um, I don't think it's necessarily changed the way we design buildings too dramatically. Um, it's come very fast, but it has informed how buildings could become more adaptive and responsive and nimble to the changes in our societal behaviour because I think, again, um, it's been a behavioural response, not necessarily a health response, which has been very interesting from a, a design standpoint. And definitely some typologies have, have adapted more than others. Uh, I mean, you know, inner city commercial developments um, have seen an emphasis on staff amenity and wellbeing, which is now at an all-time high. Um, it's only driven by the, the quality of amenity as a key attribute for landlords in attracting and retaining tenants more than ever. Um, there's a huge shift in lease arrangements and incentives for organisations who can now downsize their business uh, presence, their CBD business presence, and adopt a, a hub and spoke office model. Um, interestingly, though, I think uh, we also need to look closer at the blue collar. Um, you know, we regularly talk about how COVID has shifted the way we work and office environment and how this impacted, you know, we can work remotely and all that, but you speak to a boilermaker, a fabricator, a tailor, a baker, you know, these are not skills you can simply do on the other side of the screen. You know, you've got a workplace. You can't do it other than in the workplace. You can't have a study and, you know, fabricate a piece of steel. Um, and I think, you know, I think, that's probably a voice that's kind of gone unheard, um, possibly. Uh, you know, we've seen that in, in our projects where we have seen um, a drive to, you know, there's been an acceleration of automation in fabrication and, and industry and industrial um, projects. Um, and we've also seen how we have to be a lot more um, aggressive in making these facilities more productive so we can separate, you know, work activities between workers and, and maintaining health and well-being. Um, it's, a, it's a very interesting dynamic and I think there's a large portion of, of, of designs talking about the white collar and I think, you know, we really need to unpack the other, the other part of it. There's logistics and all those that go along with, it, with the same conversation. Okay, now let's look. Can we talk a little bit about Fisherman's Bend? Okay. Yes. So it is adaptive reuse, isn't it? I mean, that that used to be from from memory, because I, I should know this, because my uncle worked there, uh, making Holdens a long time ago. So that used to be like a very, very, very industrial area of Melbourne, isn't it? Absolutely, and in fact, they're still making a few things and fabricating. There's a 
a large defense precinct in uh, Fisherman's Bend. It's a massive precinct. Um, this particular site, this particular warehouse is in the Wirraway precinct. Right. Um, it's mostly owned by Goodman, so they have a number of warehouses that um, uh, do logistics and um, um, distribution facilities. Uh, so yeah, it's 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 a very intense industrial zone, um, and as an adaptive reuse, 100% kind of defines the um, the intent and the purpose of an adaptive reuse. You know, for, for us at Haim Charlie, this is a true embellishment of our design philosophy, um, you know, enabling communities to flourish. And this particular project is currently, even during lockdown, doing very well in in a, a community that's now pretty happy with, uh, with, the, with the end result. I'll read something from your website. Um, in a completely unique concept for an Australian um, supermarket, Woolworths Fisherman's Bend is an adaptive reuse of an existing warehouse, inserting a cutting-edge retail neighbourhood neighbourhood centre rather into an industrial setting. The reason I read that out um, is it got me thinking: could this be a template with what the Woolies over there? Is, is there a, is there is this is this something that we should be looking at more more of in, in terms of design? Yeah, look, I think um, absolutely. Um, when, when, when we looked at the project, we kind of saw a great opportunity that's, that rests around the country in, in similar um, scenarios and, and industrial zones. Because um, traditionally, your industrial zones were always on the outskirts of suburbia and, you know, kind of away um, because of, for various reasons, the activities and the intensity and and so on. Um, and suburbia has, as we all know, organically grown out of the CBD kind of radii and gone around these precincts and further and beyond. But inevitably they've grown around these industrial precincts. And um, so yes, uh, what's, what's phenomenal about Fisherman's Bend is there's a lot of hesitation within some of the development um, sites in taking that first step of regeneration or gentrification of the, the precinct. And the hesitation is based on a lack of amenity or activity or attraction. So what's happened with Fisherman's Bend is, um, you know, Woolworths has taken a, quite a big leap of faith in, in the project and said, well, let's take a first go at this we're on one end we're surrounded by industrial and we're at the very edge of this industrial precinct and directly opposite us is a is a community oval and on the opposite side of that is all residential heading south um and they took the punt that if they pop the supermarket into this particular warehouse that's um you know the residential will respond to that because their closest next Woolworths is actually quite far away and um, so as a catalyst, I like to use the word catalyst, it is a very unique catalyst because what it's done for the larger precinct is it's immediately dropped in that activation. It's immediately dropped in that retail intensification. It's changed a particular precinct from a nine-to-five weekday operation where the rest of the hours, including the weekend, is fairly dormant into this little pocket where there's retail uh, intensive retail use 
uh, at retail hours. So we got, you know, Woolies store that's trading to late hours, trading over the weekends. It's got a cafe, it's got a little restaurant, it's got, um, you know, food trucks and things like that that roll in and out uh, seven days a week. And suddenly the neighbouring um, properties have this opportunity to go, hey, we can pull that lever sooner because we can sell our proposition knowing that there's a supermarket just down the, down the road across the road. And so that's why I say deliberately it's a catalyst of transformation and certainly a good model for, you know, other, other regions to, to adopt or to, uh, to test and, and apply. If you were, in from an urban design perspective, if you were going to design something today, most urgently, the most urgent thing you think is needed, what would it be and why is this important to you? From an urban design standpoint, mm. um, you know, I, I'll take a step back and just, you know, from that 1,500 kilometre a, a, a year perspective, and, and that's probably one thing that Melbourne's got a really good, certainly my experience has been, um, you know, the, the, it's the concept of the villages as opposed to the CBD and suburbia. And Sydney obviously has got that as well in Brisbane. Um, and I think a lot a lot of LGAs are absolutely grabbing this and, and, and making it into reality around, around Australia. Um, the concept of that 15 minutes village where everything is around and everything's within proximity and i think uh covid's taught us that lesson you know with lockdowns um being restricted to time and restricted to travel and, and and access is learning your own village and staying within your own village and actually capitalizing on on the idea of that village um and so from from an urban design point of view i think a few things that from my perspective, I would love to be a part of designing. Um, in fact, I, I wrote a small piece um, just recently, which will come out in Shopping Centre News, is around the, this concept of, of, of Hyperloop transportation. Um, you know, I'd love to be part of uh, part of a team that, you know, possibly delivers something like that, um, where we can look at transcontinent rapid transport um, to take the place of air travel, potentially, or long distance journeys and logistics through something that starts to tie things together like satellite communities and satellite cities um, and can be powered through re renewables as opposed to fossil fuels and things like that. And the way that could potentially transform our urban landscape um, has obviously a lot of potential and a lot of opportunity. So, you know, if I to imagine myself designing something that you know that's that's ahead and futuristic that's probably where i would like to that's where my mind goes straight away just because i'm, I'm very interested and passionate about that kind of form of transportation and its benefits to to the urban realm now to ask you the question that i ask every guest and I've, so far i've so far got the almost almost everyone to a to a person has given the exact same answer bar two Okay, so I'll just see whether whether you're whether you're an outlier or, 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 or whether you're in, in the eighty percent bell curve. So, if you didn't become an architect, what would you be instead, and why? Hmm. Um, it was it's very easy answer to give you. Um, I would uh, the twenty year old in me says that I would have been an industrial designer designing 
fuel efficient vehicles. <laughs> Funny enough. Okay. Um, yeah, I was, um, other than always wanting to be an architect, I was, I've always had a passion for industrial design, specifically car design and transport design. You know, names like Giugiaro, Bertoni, Pininfarina, Chris Bangle, Harold Belka, um, they're all roll off the tongue for me, but quite influential while I was uh, finishing school in, in uni. Because um, I've always been intrigued by the notion of designing an object that's so ubiquitous and universal uh, with the ability to impact millions of people around the globe almost instantaneously. And the opportunity it had to impact fossil fuel. Um, you know, when, when I was at uni, it was a big thing about fossil fuel. Um, so in the, you know, the late 90s, there was this concept of the, the hypercar. And the hypercar was really a green energy initiative um, to help reduce, help reduce manufacture, the cost of ownership, uh, improve the recycling of cars and reuse of cars improve safety, make propulsion emissions free uh, and reduce impacts. Um, so for me, it was super interesting. I, in fact, I did a mini little thesis during my studies on that. Uh, in fourth year to the dismay of a number of lecturers and I actually got a, I applied and got a scholarship to a school in Norway, in Oslo. Um, but unfortunately at that time, um, moving from South Africa to Norway was very very difficult and i had to decline so if i was an architect i'd be designing cars well see actually that gets me thinking you know when i was at school yeah i was going to say this um you know Joburg to to oslo that, that would be a culture shock and a half do you think that that is how would i put this when i look at a lot of publications for architecture and design i notice a lot of uh, no not all of them actually i should say um, cover car design, which is really interesting with your answer. So do you think that there's actually becoming this, there's, there's coming this overlap between, you know, car designers and, 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 and you know, urban or let's say building design, do you think that this overlap is coming or has it already arrived? I mean, have, have, I, have I not noticed? Oh, look, I think, I think from a design point of view, um, there's a lot of, there's a lot of, um, intelligence that we probably share in terms of complexities and how you know how the system comes together because the car is really a, a very very complicated system of engineering and architecture really is um, a system of engineering that's put together in a very artistic form or, or um, built form and so I think there is a you know certainly my my studies and my my passion has been that there's this there's a serious overlap between architecture and car design because of the, the way we bring engineering systems, very complex, highly complex engineering systems together in a sculptural manner. And there's something really beautiful about that, that form of art, really. Um, but yeah, in terms of urban design and how we go about things, we can't live without cars as much as we'd love to in a utopian world. Um, the car will go away, it'll probably change, and the way we use them and our relationships with them will change over time, hopefully for the better. Um, but at the same time, you know, um, we need to we need to move around, and transport transport is 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 how we live, how we experience life. Um, so, 
well, I guess one day I'll, one day I will get my flying car. Harold <laughs> Burks, director with Hame Charlie. Thank you very much for your time. Appreciate it. And uh, did I, am I an outlier or am I giving you the response to ninety-eight percent? No, actually, you 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 set up your own category because you're you're kind of you've kind of answered it in a similar way. Everyone's sort of saying an artistic design um, type of or mainly artistic um, response, but your response was actually a, a bit of both. So you you've got you've got your feet in both hands there. Which is, <laughs> you're you're now you're now category three. But thank you very much, Harold. Uh, it was lovely to talk to you and um, take care over there in, uh, in, in the West and, uh, and hopefully we shall talk again. Appreciate your time. You've been talking to, uh, you've been listening rather to Talking Architecture Design. My name is Branko Maletic. Until next time, goodbye. I'm Branko Maletic. Thanks for listening to Talking Architecture and Design brought to you in association with the Architecture and Design Network. The A&E Network proudly presents the Sustainability Awards now in their 14th year. You can find more information at sustainablebuildingawards.com.au.